You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Post-Extractivist Legacies and Landscapes, Humanities, Artistic and Activist Responses. Led by the UCD Humanities Institute, Principal Investigator Anna Fuchs, Co-Investigators Sarah Common and Megan Custer, Post-Extractivist Legacies and Landscapes was selected by the Consortium of Humanities Centres and Institutes to lead a two-year Andrew W. Mellon-funded Global Humanities Institute 2023. The project will develop through a pre-, main- and post-institute in 2023, each hosted by a different partner institution. This podcast features a recording from the main institute meeting, which took place in University College Dublin in July 2023. This podcast features a roundtable on methodologies concerning extractivism. The speakers were Elizabeth Miller from UC Davis, Macarena Gomez-Barris from Brown University, and Ico Day from Mount Holyoke College. The roundtable was convened and chaired by Sarah Common and co-sponsored by the Irish Research Council Minerals Project. It's my great pleasure to be convening the second plenary roundtable for the conference and the opening session for today. Um, I don't know if you're allowed to say this as a convener of a panel, but what an amazing panel. I'm so excited um, about our speakers today. I'd like to begin by thanking the Irish Research Council for co-sponsoring this um, roundtable as part of my Minerals Laureate project. Um, I convened this interdisciplinary panel because all of these brilliant scholars have been so formative in my own thinking around extractivism. Um, its colonial logics and racial legacies, and have fundamentally shaped the methodological framework of my laureate project. So I'm absolutely thrilled to have them here. So our first speaker for today is Professor Elizabeth Carolyn Miller, who is Professor of English at UC Davis. She's also Chair of the Department of Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies. Her scholarly interests include 19th and early 20th century literature of Britain and the British Empire, eco-criticism and environmental studies, gender studies and media studies. She has multiple publications which include slow print, literary radicalism and late Victorian print culture, framed the new woman criminal in British culture at the Fin de Siècle, and her most recent publication with Princeton University Press in 2021 is Extraction Ecologies and the Literature of the Long Exhaustion, which recently won the Stansky Prize by the North American Conference on British Studies. Our second speaker is Professor Macarena Gomez-Barris, who's a writer and scholar with a focus on the decolonial environmental humanities, authoritarianism and extractivism, queer Latinx epistemes, media environments, racial ecologies, cultural theory and artistic practice. She is the author of four books, including The Extractive Zone, which many people referenced yesterday, um, I think a testament to the influence um, of this book. Um, also author of Beyond the Pink Tide, Art and Political Undercurrents in the Americas. And her forthcoming book is um, At the Sea's Edge with Duke University Press that considers colonial, colonial oceanic transits and the generative space between land and sea. Our final speaker is Professor Aiko Day, who is Elizabeth C. Small Professor and Chair of English and the Interim Chair of the Department of Critical Race and Political Economy at Mount Holyoke College. 
Day is the author of Alien Capital, Asian Ra Racialization and the Logic of Settler Colonial Capitalism with Duke University Press. And her essays have appeared in many publications, including American Quarterly, Amerasia, Monthly Review, and PMLA. Her current research focuses, and I think we're going to be hearing about this today, I'm very excited, on Marxism and racial capitalism, colonialism, and nuclear anti-politics, and the visual culture of logistics. Please make our panel very welcome. Thank you so much. So uh, my remarks today are going to briefly address questions of methodology and definition that Sarah asked us to consider, and in broad strokes, but I'm looking forward to the conversation with um, my fellow panelists and all of you afterward. In a recent piece for the journal Petrocultures, Eric Pinnell notes that in 2017, 92 gigatons of matter were extracted from the planet. This includes metals, minerals, biomass, and fossil fuels. How much is a gigaton? 1 billion metric tons, or 2.2 trillion pounds, and 92 of them were extracted from the planet in one year. This is a stark representation, as Pinot puts it, of, quote, the brute, sorry, the brute materiality of capitalist societies. What is more, this mass of extracted matter quote, has grown by a factor of 3.4 in little less than half a century. What is extractivism? It is this. It is a global economic system and a system of environmental relations built on accelerating removal of raw materials and living materials from the earth in which they were embedded. The root word for extractivism, of course, is extraction, a term most commonly used with regard to underground mineral resources, but which can also refer to other natural resources. Definitions of extractivism abound, but I'm personally partial to Sandra Mazadra and Brett Nielsen's characterization of extraction in their uh, special issue from uh, a few years back as, quote, the forced removal of raw materials and life forms from the Earth's surface, depths, and biosphere. Recent critics such as Macarena Gomez-Barris in her marvelous book, have employed a more expansive use of the term, identifying, for example, hydroelectricity or even spiritual tourism as extractive practices. Other critics, such as Imre Zeman and Jennifer Wenzel, have argued for a more minimalist rather than a maximalist definition of the term, citing, quote, the risk of conceptual creep and adjectival ubiquity, and advocating that we, quote, hold on to extraction in its specifically material and ecological sense as a term that names a disjuncture between extracted resources and the life worlds they came from. So we've touched on the terms extractivism, extraction. To go a little further back, the etymological chain, I just want to briefly consider the verb extract. Um, in his landmark dictionary from 1755, Samuel Johnson defined the verb to extract as, quote, to take from something of which the thing taken was a part. I think this definition gets at a fundamental transformation that happens in the act of extraction. If mined minerals are a part of the earth before extraction, they are something else afterwards, something that's countable, portable, and valuable. What counts in extraction are the bits of earth that are removed, sold, and transported. The extractive zone, to use Macarena's term, in which they were embedded, does not. A critique of this dynamic has emerged, of course, in recent post-colonial writing about extraction, 
often centering on carbon-based fuels, but theorizing from that example broader relations within colonialism and capitalism that have produced the resource imbalance between the global south and north. Latin American studies has been a key site for this kind of work. Uh, Thea Riafrancos, to take one example, discusses extractivismo as a concept that places, quote, ongoing struggles over natural resources, territory, and indigenous sovereignty within a longer history of imperial conquest. My own research has focused on the 19th and early 20th centuries, and in this context, I think the term extraction helps us understand the emergence of a new kind of industrial society that was for the first time, fully reliant on finite underground materials. Um, in the 19th century, there's a pronounced tension, I think, between the rise of industrialized mining on the one hand and the new kind of society it was creating and the concurrent emergence of ecological science. For while extraction presumes the ability to withdraw one piece from the receptacle of nature, ecology, on the other hand, suggests a complex of interdependences from which no single part can be removed in isolation. So my recent book, Extraction, Ecologies in the Literature of the Long Exhaustion, appeared in October 2021. And in the time since its publication, it's become ever more evident that we are entering a new era of extraction. Decarbonization requires the extraction of critical minerals, and everywhere we hear plans for a 21st century mineral resource rush aimed at lithium, rare earth metals, cobalt, and more. In September 2022, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, president of the EU, unveiled the Critical Raw Materials Act, quote, to ensure a secure, sustainable, and competitive supply chain for clean energy to reach the EU's climate and energy ambitions. A month later in the United States, President Biden announced the American Battery Materials Initiative, which, along with legislation like the November 2021 bipartisan infrastructure law, aims to ramp up domestic extraction of critical minerals and diversify extraterritorial sources and trading partners. Critics from the left have challenged this new green extractivism, asking how the damage will be mitigated or repaired in sites of extraction, the sacrifice zones of the green economy, and wondering why public transportation and housing density, for example, which would necessitate, necessitate less energy to begin with, are not playing a bigger role in our decarbonization imagination. Such debates notwithstanding, there's a general acknowledgement, as my book puts it, that our only choice is to dig ourselves out of the hole we have made. To decarbonize, we have to extract to one extent or another, but where and how much? These are the critical questions. So my research focuses on an earlier energy transition, the transition to fossil fuels and the emergence of an extraction-based society. But these challenging questions of our own moment are one reason why I chose to focus on extraction rather than simply on coal and oil. My book, for example, tracks the prehistory of climate change in terms of extractivism, not just fossil fuels. For the rise of steam power required iron as well as coal and the extraction of all kinds of underground minerals was drastically accelerated by the introduction of steam technologies and transportation. It's often forgotten that the first steam engines were actually built to pump water out of coal mines. So in this sense, mines actually gave birth to steam power. In focusing on mineral resource extraction, my work sheds light on the moment when Britain came to understand itself as an empire 
that was thoroughly dependent on mining, an extraction-based industrial society that was irretrievably bound up with underground material. Because I'm tracing the development of this new complex of social, economic, and environmental understandings, my questions uh, in my research are primarily cultural, and so it's to literature that I turn for answers. So a key methodological question that I want to address before stopping today is why literature? What is to be gained from a study of extractivism that focuses on literary texts? I would say first that historical literature is a guide to how people thought and felt in the past and thus can give us a sense of conceptual transformation over time. Also, literature, like other forms of art, is collective. Individual novels may be written by individual authors, for example, but literary genre and form are produced through aggregate patterns that capture and shape wider habits of mind. So I think changes in genre and form, such as the ones that my book tries to track, are in this sense records of environmental thought. Extractivism's material trace since the Industrial Revolution is visible in the geological record, but also in the cultural one. But only the cultural record can provide us more than a trace of this material reality, for literature can also offer traces of resistance, lament, adaptation, incorporation, imaginative response. Narrative literature can also serve to imagine new kinds of energy, new relations to energy. It can inure us to the threats and sorrows of the industrial regime, too. My research looks back to the period from the 1830s when British industry made a decisive transformation to coal-fired steam power to the 1930s when the early promise of nuclear power seemed to suggest the possibility of moving beyond fossil fuels. It draws a connection between the depletion-based society that emerged in this moment, which was premised on what were understood to be um, finite underground resources, and the depletion-based society we inhabit today, premised on burning fossil fuels. We're still living in the long exhaustion, but as we enter a new extraction boom driven by decarbonization, I think there are lessons to be gained by a clear understanding of where we are and how we got here, and this understanding can be gleaned in part from literature of the past. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm very excited to be here. And I'm especially really excited about the provocation of this symposium in particular, um, a pan in our panel on methodology, but also the kind of emphasis on the post and really thinking with the post as a kind of discussion of post-extractivism, to think with temporalities and the longer temporalities that are implicated um, that predate kind of, you know, human uh, terraformation, and to think with the kind of chronicles of devastating and dispossessing timelines, especially with the dominant and global model of extractivism. So thank you for doing that work already, Liz. Um, but also the post as it places emphasis not only on this dominant model, but thinking about the critical hopeful potential, um, the alternative futures that were mentioned yesterday, the imagination potentially of a post-extractivist future. So I love this idea of the possibility of after-extractivism uh, and asking us for methods or modes of analytical and engaged practice that ask us to go beyond what I'd call the normative timeline of human and more than human um, extinction. And that comes out of work that I'm trying to uh, think with the Anthropocene, not to create other kinds of conceptual vocabularies. We have many around the Anthropocene, but 
to talk about the colonial Anthropocene as to really demarcate the Anthropocene as a colonial timeline and that to not presume that there's certain normative timelines of extinction, but to challenge those. So when I wrote The Extractive Zone, I did so with a kind of urgency, and it was urgency that really came from working with and alongside anti-extractive activist organizations and movements, and especially in relationship to indigenous-led communities um, in the Americas on the front line of the ever-expanding territories of extraction. And in that book, what I was doing was chronicling five different Afro-indigenous territories of extreme plunder, theft, and monoculture that were and continue to be managed by rapacious corporations, by forms of plundering and theft that were facilitated by many kinds of racial incorporatist and severance states. I love that term that Sabina used yesterday, um, especially because I think this term severance allows us to also think in very complex ways about the history of capitalism in relation to titling and property forms of enclosure um, in relation to, you know, the extractive gaze, but also to the, you know, severance has maybe the primary form of sense-making within the Western onto-episteme that is extraction. Okay, I know that's wordy, but that's um, how I want to put that. I also want to suggest that severance is a primary strategy of original primitive accumulation of transatlantic slavery that severed the Afro-Indigenous body from ancestral territories. So in that sense, I think I'm arguing for a wider sense of what extractivism is because of the connection between racialized bodies and land and the European gaze and the Western onto episteme. So if that weren't true, then maybe we could think in a more limited sense about um, minerals and other forms of resources, but I think we have to include that in our discussion. So to think with method then, okay? Uh, in the extractive zone in the book that followed it, Beyond the Pink Tide, I was really focused on giving a lot of attention to artists and activists and social movements and formations because of what I saw as careful documentation and visualization and strategies of counter-narration or counter-mapping um, about these devastating impacts. And in those books, I was really thinking of creativity in a positive sense, where artists were mediators, they were theorists. Uh, I was looking at indigenous filmmaking, anarcho-indigenous feminist practice, and thinking about movements or geochoreographies as really central to the ways to confront and refuse colonialism and its continuities, as well as to counteract the developmental fallacies of extractivism. So today I'm doing something different, okay? I'm thinking about art differently, and I'm thinking about art as severance from that kind of order within the kind of Western logic, and especially in its highly commodified and fungible form. So highly commoditized art, and a lot of art is, and as we know, that capitalist market is extremely quick in incorporating creative practice. So that's kind of the, the lens I want to put on what I'm, my short comments today. So these comments come out of a piece that was first commissioned um, uh, by Strike MoMA, and the Strike MoMA campaign, MoMA being the Museum of Modern Art in New York. It's soon going to be published in a special issue in EFLUX, uh, you know, maybe in a contradictory fashion, um, on architectures of extraction. And my main aim is really to think about the structures of capitalist, 
capitalized R, I really resonated with Carlos's comments yesterday about the museum and the collection and the way in which we both like the museum and need to rethink the museum, um, and, and also the forms of maybe thinking about discard studies or decompositions or unthinking and undoing these institutions in order to make room for another kind of post-extractive future. So in that vein, I'd like to offer the term of kind of unearthing architecture or unearthing extractive architectures. So if architecture, of course, is the dominant art and technique of design and building, then unearthing extractive architectures is the analytical practice that aims to really uncover the financialization of culture, art, and the built environment by unveiling an urban colonial model in ruins. Um, yesterday we were thinking about the void and thick mapping or the turn to indigenous and place-based knowledges. And what I'm proposing has continuities with this, but also with actually refusing the structures of extractive capitalism. And in part, I learned this from the successful campaign that you might know of, and if not, you can look online, and it's really well documented there, of Decolonize This Place in New York City that led to the conditions that forced billionaire Warren Canders to step down from the Whitney Board of Trustees two years ago. So one focus of that campaign was to make visible how the weapons companies owned by Canders and Safari Land and Defense Technology um, produced canisters and smoke grenades used against migrants at the southern border in the United States. And though Canders had promised to divest from these industries, the ongoing investments in the military-industrial complex continued to accrue gigantic profits for the U.S. and the global economy based on war manufacturing. There are huge numbers around this. I won't go into it, but I do have a series of footnotes about how large that war manufacturing economy currently is in relationship to extractivism. But the campaign by Whitney No More really generatively exposed the relations between the legendary cultural institution and the historical occupation of Lenape Hoking territory and the violence unleashed against dispossessed migrants crossing the southern border. But then it also had tie-ins with Palestinian occupation and kind of, you know, harken back to South African apartheid and really exposed a lot of different kinds of entangled problems uh, or nodes of extractivism. So... Um, and just to say, we of course know that the very foundation of the American and UK oil industries was built upon black gold or uh, oil and continues to undergird the carbon-dependent global economy. So what our target was with the, this new campaign in Strike MoMA um, was to really think about the art patrons and the kind of the, the back end of this looking at John D. Rockefeller's use of and the fortune investments from oil wells in Pennsylvania and Ohio in the latter half of the 1800s, thinking about Rockefeller and Paul Getty and how they fundled their profiteering from petroleum into art collections that created the very foundation of major U.S. cultural institutions. So how to unearth then these urban architectures and to consider the hegemony of not only thingifying the land and its materials, um, and then converting those into fungible uh, commodities, but also the recurrent capitalist practice that invests in art, in art collections, as extractive art washing, um, and that normalizes colonial and modern relations of resource theft. So um, 
then how to, you know, yesterday we were talking about how our own research and our own institutions are implicated. And I don't think it's about individuals and individual research, but these structures of institution, you know, structures of research um, that are implicated here. And also the, the long aftermath and chronicling that of petroleum and mineral empires. And then more recently, and I'm now chair of, um, you know, Modern Culture and Media Studies Department, so I'm thinking a lot about media infrastructures, but the ways in which, you know, media and multimedia conglomerates are implicated here. And so the kind of blood in our computer, if you will, as John Beller calls it, right, all of that back infrastructure and extractive infrastructure that doesn't only power the global economies, but that connects us in our online intimacies, our digital imprints, our affective communities, our knowledge production, all of those consumption practices that mediate every micro aspect of our daily life as you well know. Um, so let me ground it very quickly in something specific in what is somewhat of a taboo example, as I found out in one or two presentations. Um, that is the Colección Patricia Phelps de Cisneros. This is a privately held collection based in both New York and Venezuela, and it has substantial and gr growing collections in Latin American contemporary art. And here, there's a large Cisnero Research Institute um, for the study of art from Latin America. It was established at MoMA in New York in 2016, and it was Gustavo and Patricia Cisneros, who are multi-billionaires, whose international conglomerates make up over 70 companies that have, um, according to the New York Times, allowed for the Cisneros to have unfettered access to high-ranking political and economic <coughs> officials in nearly 40 countries. So it's extremely wide forms of impact. And this way that I think Eduardo Galeano beautifully first documented of what it means to have kind of such wide political access, um, the ways in which, you know, uh, access is never innocent in producing forms of inequality. So... Just a couple of more things to say about this, that Cisnero first made his fortune through diverse assets, including the Venezuelan oil um, you know, industry in the pre-Chavez period. Uh, that was the first part of his earnings. And then when easy access to underground petroleum reserves proved more difficult, um, in part because there was increased frontline indigenous activism and custodianship at the site of territorial difference, then Cisnero began to diversify his portfolio into media and electronics. You see that direct line, right? And become one of the richest men in the Americas. Um, currently, Grupo Cisnero is a vast empire based in Coral Gables, Florida. Florida is always at the center of these um, extractive industries and a conglomerate of digital media, entertainment, tourist, and real estate investments with an astounding consumer audience that reaches more than 600 million Spanish and Portuguese-speaking peoples throughout the hemisphere and in Europe. Grupo Cisneros is also the largest investor in Univision, broadly known as a conservative media organization with massive global social and political influence upon Latinx, uh, Latin American and European markets. And I just have to say this, right, this is deeply implicated with right-wing influences, ongoing extractivism in the Caribbean and gold and mineral extraction, and the massive creation of new markets through Spanish and Portuguese-speaking world, and just to say, and sorry, this is a theoretical statement, and excuse my language, but Cisnero shows how extractivism is really a clusterfuck, because um, it really exposes all of these relations. So 
Often, I just want to mention, too, in liberal white philanthropy, there's a gender dimension to this project where the billionaire class extracts to accumulate wealth and then reinvests in our collections. And Mrs. Cisnero is a powerful patron in New York and has all of these controls around, you know, who has access to knowledge production, who gets the postdocs, et cetera, um, and the ways in which that collection is positioned and who will be access, get access to funding. So just in terms of concluding thoughts, yesterday there was a discussion about repurposing the digital infrastructures and um, for, of extractivism for new methods. And of course, I have to put Audrey Lord's question here at the table, on the table again about, you know, can we dismantle the master's house using the master's tool, the importance of remembering that, and, you know, and what else? So media and communications platforms provide value as source materials, but of course, it's part of this abstraction process that you were equating, Carlos, with abstraction and, you know, abstraction and extraction in ways that really predicate upon racialized capital. And new technologies depend upon the same language as we know as resource, resource extraction, such as mining big data, prospecting, collecting biomatter, tracking users through surveillance, all of these methodologies, and you know, we can go in much deeper to that discussion if you want to, but also the ways in which the agendas of the political right are normalized through extractivism and then reinstated through this world of art as commerce, assigning forms of value as, you know, um, as central. Um, and so, again, just to point to the military state as also part of the instantiation of a new media extractive matrix. So how then can we think about post-extractive futures given all of this? Um, for me, it's really this work together that we did to create platforms, the kind of collectivities, the movements, the unbuilding, the unworlding, unearthing these architectures and infrastructures, the ways of thinking about a post-extractive future otherwise, the kind of emphasis on the otherwise, uh, and ultimately, you know, even though Strike MoMA wasn't successful with its aim, we were able to do a number of things. We were able to kind of expose what Vandiva Shiva has called the monoculture of the mind or expose some of the fascist logics that were backing some of, you know, um, the, the boards at MoMA and their interests. There was also exposure and connection to Palestinian struggles, to Global South decolonization movements, we created an alternative school, a place, place for deep study, thought about uh, kind of anti-black um, struggles, anti-black world. So all of this tethering work, and if you're interested in models for that, really could point you to um, Veronica Gago's uh, book on the feminist international in Argentina, where I think she really talks about these collective and relational forms of not just um, kind of affective communities, but political struggle that I think are really, really important in um, models. So we also thought a lot about internationalism and critical forms of solidarity. And just to say, if the museum and the art collection are these sites of extractive modernity and art washing, then maybe really targeting carbon centers and media um, empires is precisely what Stuart Hall referred to as the project of articulation, but also disarticulation, right, in particular historical juncture, uh, historical junctions. And again, to think with Rox, uh, Rosa Luxemburg and others about the strike, 
maybe striking in every possible way we can is one way to unbuild the colonial planetary uh, moment and to think towards a post-carbon non-extractive future. So I want to place emphasis on the non-extractive rather than the post-extractive. Thank you for listening. I also want to just um, echo thanks. I'm really grateful to be here in conversation with you. So in my research, um, I've I've examined extractivism um, primarily in the context of uranium mining and through a framework of colonial wastelanding. Um, I initially began this research because of my own family's connection um, to the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, uh, which killed my grandfather and uncle. Um, But as I delved more deeply into this research, I learned that uranium um, mined in the Belgian Congo and the Northwest Territories in Canada was used to produce the atomic bomb that was tested in New Mexico and detonated over Hiroshima um, 78 years ago next month. So what I found was that although indigenous land and labor um, are actively disconnected from nuclearism and a nuclear modernity, it is largely indigenous people across the globe who bear the brunt of the entire nuclear fuel cycle from uranium mining uh, and refining to nuclear power and weapons testing. So, And when mines are shut down, indigenous communities are left um, with lands and waters contaminated by nuclear waste. In Tracy Bryn Boyle's um, work on uranium mines on Navajo lands in the U.S. Southwest, she describes the wasteland as a racial and spatial signifier that renders an environment and the bodies that inhabit it pollutable. These are sites that are deemed unproductive, backward, and therefore excluded from infrastructural modernity. Yet importantly, these sites remain targets of continual rounds of economic and environmental devastation. So the question, sort of Marx's question that I wanted to ask was the following. Is the wasteland a core expression of colonial capital accumulation, or is it a violation of it? Secondly, why are certain racial and colonial geographies repeatedly subject to wastelanding? And so I'll give you an example. Um, After decades of toxic contamination from open mines and uranium tailings in the Great Bear Lake region of the Northwest Territories, the energy corporation Alberta Star secured rights um, in 2008 um, uh, to prospect for uranium at the very site um, where uranium was sourced for the Manhattan Project in the appropriately named uh, Port Radium. So this followed a decades-long demand for justice to address the post-war cancer epidemic that decimated the Satu Dene community. So um, in thinking about how you know, this becomes this is kind of an interesting loop that happens, is that no, no matter the duration in which the sacrifice zone of abandoned toxic waste, machinery, and raw material, materials have remained fallow, um, the period, uh, that period is kind of retroactively incorporated into the temporal schema and rationale of improvement and resource developments that support a nexus of war, energy, and finance. So I want to demonstrate um, how wastelanding is actually a core expression of colonial racial capital accumulation. And specifically, the example of nuclear wastelanding in Canada exhibits how the settler state constitutes indigenous land and labor as waste, um, which is a necessary precondition of extractivist accumulation and wastelanding. And here I'm drawing on uh, Brenna Bandar's work on the colonial regimes of property to underscore the ways um, ideologies of waste have mediated the way that race and property have been kind of pro-produced 
since the 17th century. Uh, for William Petty, uh, who was actually a key architect of the colonial regime here in Ireland, uh, property ownership was defined by ideologies of use and improvement. Uh, and the value of land and human life were actually seen as conceptual equivalents. Um, Petty formulated an early waste theory of value, uh, which determined that um, so-called uncultivated land and subsistence modes of living were actually just waste. Um, so this racialized mode of space-making became a blueprint for the dispossession of indigenous peoples in other British settler colonies. The material articulation of race and property really comes into full view in the legal construction of Indian status in Canada. As the inverse of what Cheryl Harris calls whiteness as property, Indian status is defined as kind of the mere opposite of the appropriative, self-possessed individual. In fact, the Indian Act was designed to prevent relations of legal possession. It prohibited the development of any kind of independent reserve economy, and any money um, came, that came from the sale of lands was, uh, or resources was controlled by the colonial government. In other words, an anti-economic uh, rationality was infused into Indian status. As such, um, indigenous workers um, have been excluded from a capitalist construction of the rational free-wage worker, and their agency as labor is either unrecognizable or cast as antithet antithetical to the production of value. As Bandar clarifies, the colonial impulsion to improve the native was not conditioned by the need to create a reserve army of labor. Rather, indigenous peoples faced expulsion and criminalization for resisting marketized forms of cultivation. So in this sense, labor did not civilize or improve indigenous people through the economic rationality of the possessive individual. Signifying a capitalist outside, native land and peoples embody disorder and waste, which rationalizes their subjection to continual cycles of abandonment and speculative encroachment by what Ruth Gilmore would call the anti-state state. So um, I want to actually close uh, my brief remarks actually by um, with alternative ways of conceptualizing waste and wastelands beyond what Maka, uh, Maka you know, appropriately calls the uh, extractive view. So one place to start um, is by thinking through the queerness of wasteland through its non-chrononormative disorder as a place that thwarts the linear, develop, uh, the, the linear temporality of use and improvement. Um, so with this idea of non-chrononormativity in mind, um, I want to turn briefly to Alan D'Souza's terrain series, which is behind me. So at first glance, um, D'Souza's terrain photograph uh, resembles a kind of a southwestern land desert landscape, maybe, conjuring mythologies of a 19th century frontier. But the work is actually uh, somewhat deceptive. The rocks and foliage um, that you see are actually constructed out of eyelashes, earwax, and pubic hair that he collected off of his bathroom floor. So through the detritus uh, of his everyday life, D'Souza's wasteland uh, evokes not the patriarchal, heroic, or the monumental that we might associate with the frontier, but rather the private, the trivial, and extraneous. 
Um, as, and as Gayatri Gopinath observes, um, for D'Souza, bodily detritus is in fact very generative. Um, and she notes that for D'Souza, waste really speaks to his own history, his bodily history, literally, even, and even if that has, history has yet to be imagined. And she notes that for, um, uh, what, sorry, waste allows for a, a reckoning with the past while being marked by the present in, in order to in, imagine possible futures. As a queer sign, um, waste represents, I think, a range of disintegrating boundaries that conjure our disgust uh, between the clean and unclean, between health and decay. As both empirical object and aesthetic creation, waste can operate in terms of what Gabrielle Hecht describes as an interscalar vehicle, offering a means of connecting stories and scales usually kept apart, boundaried and divided. As an interscalar vehicle traveling between scales of nuclearism, waste is an aesthetic medium that foregrounds the circulation of capital and the production of surplus land and people in a manner that Boyles describes as wastelanding. Moreover, um, D'Souza's wasteland offers a visual allegory of the abstractions that are part of the hidden abode of capitalist production. And so through his aesthetic practice that actually reveals through concealment, um, he restores in many ways the dead labor of social reproduction to the visual field in offering a vision of the return of the fragmented corporeal body D'Souza's wasteland evokes what Tiffany <coughs> King calls chaotic terranulius, um, provoking an underlying settler anxiety about the ungovernability of indigenous non-rational being. It offers a vision of native survival against the colonial relations of anti-relation. As Leanne Simpson reminds us, um, the opposite of dispossession is not possession, um, it is deep reciprocal and consensual attachment. So the opposite of wastelanding is not improvement, it is indebtedness, connection, and a reappropriation of historical time for the invention of decolonial futures. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify, and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.